Hello, everyone. This is Volts for November 10th, 2023. The cheapest way to permanently sequester carbon involves fizzy water. I'm your host, David Roberts. The idea behind the Icelandic company CarbFix is simple. Pack water full of carbon dioxide, literally carbonate it like a soda stream, and inject it deep underground into Iceland's porous basaltic rock. Minerals in the rock dissolve in the water where they react with the CO2 to become calcium carbonates. The carbon effectively becomes rock, which it will remain for all intents and purposes permanently, or at least thousands and thousands of years. It is as long-term as carbon sequestration gets. The idea dates back to 2006, but pilot injections didn't begin until 2013, and it wasn't until 2016 that a study published in Science confirmed that 95% of the CO2 in the water was mineralizing within two years, far faster than most had assumed possible. Since it started, CarbFix has sequestered almost 100,000 metric tons of CO2 at its original site, but that is just a drop in the bucket compared to what it believes is possible. It has plans to make Iceland a major international carbon burial hub and to replicate its technology at other geothermal plants and in other geographies, maybe even in the shallow ocean. When I visited the CarbFix operation in October and saw it in action, I was extremely intrigued and had a million more questions. So last week, I got in touch with Olafur Gunnarsson, CarbFix's head of communications, to talk about where the company gets the CO2 it buries, where it plans to get it in the future, whether burial can work in other kinds of rocks and geographies, and exactly how much carbon Iceland can store. All right, then, uh, with no further ado, Olafur Gunnarsson of CarbFix. Welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. So, Olafur, I, I visited... You guys, when I was out in Iceland a few weeks ago and was very taken with this idea. And I don't know how I have been covering this stuff for so long without ever hearing about it. But it sounds like you guys are sort of on the verge of expanding. So I think probably a lot more people are going to be hearing about you soon. So to begin with, for listeners who are not familiar with your company, I'm going to run through the process and tell me if I get anything wrong. So <laughs> okay. you get a source of water and we can discuss the source of water more later, but you get water, you carbonate it more or less like a soda stream carbonates water. You pump carbon dioxide into the water and then you pump the water deep underground. And this carbonated water is heavier than normal water. So it tends to sink down to the bottom of the water table. And as it is sinking, the carbon dioxide in the water reacts with minerals in the rock to form calcium carbonates. Basically, the carbon dioxide in the water gets transformed into a form of rock where it will then stay <laughs> underground as rock for 
thousands of years. So you permanently sequestered the carbon. Is that more or less an accurate description? It's more than more or less accurate. I think I'll give you a 10 out of 10. <laughs> <Great>. Excellent. <laughs> Good. Well, I have so many questions about this, but the one thing I wanted to start with is the carbonation process of the water. Is that your intellectual property here? Is that your sort of main thing that you've pioneered here as a, a, a different way of carbonating water? Or is there something special about the way you carbonate water? Yeah, that's one part of There are several elements to uh, what we feel is uh, proprietary or what we have solved, uh, technology that we have developed. One thing is the capture of the CO2 emissions from uh, the geothermal power plant, where we uh, were kind of born as a research project within the company that runs the geothermal power plant, as well as universities, both in Iceland and, and the US and France. So that is one element. Yes, the, the dissolving of the CO2 with the water is another element. And the third element would be the, the way to inject it. So uh, yeah, there are, there are different elements to this and at different stages of, of patenting. Oh, I didn't realize that you were involved in the capture part of this. I knew that part of the CO2 that you're burying is coming from the geothermal plant, but I had kind of thought that was separate. Are you, is this something that you're going to export if you try to export this model to other places or other countries? Is capture part of what you're promising? Or are you mostly, do you think, going to be working with CO2 that someone else captured? Yes, mostly. Capturing is not our core uh, field. Right. Uh, it just comes from the fact that we were born uh, out of this uh, proximity to the geothermal power plant. So we needed a source of, of CO2. And we may uh, and have and are collaborating with other companies that run geothermal power plants. So our uh, know-how is of use in that situation, but we are definitely not uh, primarily a capturing company. There are other companies that focus on the capture part, and that has you know different technologies for different streams of, of CO2. So we're not too involved in that. We are mainly and primarily focused on getting it into the ground right. and mineralizing it and storing it. So then when you carbonate the water, I mean, is this... The, the physics of it, is it basically the same thing that's going on in a soda stream? <laughs> is, there, is, is there anything fancy going on or is this just the carbonization that we're all familiar with? It's not too different in essence. We have a stream of CO2 and then we shower it with water and pressurize so that it is completely uh, dissolved. The difference is that we don't have the bubbles that you have in the, in the soda stream or the, the soda drinks, mineral water that you drink. Because these bubbles, uh, they mean that the, the gas is re escaping right. the fluid. So we don't want it to escape. So there is, um, we are putting more of it into the water and uh, making sure it's completely dissolved so that it doesn't rise back to the surface. And, and pressure takes care of that as well as it continues to ensure this trapping mechanism underground as well when the, when the solution gets into the, into the ground. So solubility trapping, as it's called, is, is kind of uh, the first stage of, of trapping and isolating the, the CO2 from the surroundings or from the atmosphere. It's a pretty secure way of trapping CO2, but then fairly soon mineralization comes into play as well as the second stage and even more secure. 
You know, when people think about what is basically a geological process of a gas being transformed into a, a stable mineral, I think of geological timeframes. Mm-hmm. But your mineralization process by which the CO2 is pulled out of the water and becomes rock happens in two years, you say. Two years of the water being underground. Yeah. All of the CO2 will be pulled out of it and mineralized. So how is that happening so fast? Well, you need favorable conditions. You need favorable rock formations that are uh, highly uh, porous uh, and reactive. It was uh, quite a surprise when the uh, scientific studies showed the extent and speed of the mineralization. So that was indeed uh, surprising to the scientists at the time. A lot of it actually happens even sooner. So the process starts very soon, within a few weeks. And when we're talking about within two years, that is when almost all of it has mineralized. But uh, it doesn't wait for two years and then suddenly everything mineralizes. It it starts sooner. uh, So it's a very rapid process. Yeah, and that was a surprising finding, and that got a lot of attention back in 2016 when the results were published internationally. Yeah, right. I should, we, we should mention that this is um, not a new thing. This has been, you guys have been doing this for uh, 10 years now, you've been? Yeah, 11 years. Uh, celebrated 10 years of continuous mineralization last year <laughs> and counting. So there's been plenty of like testing and, and monitoring. Like. Absolutely, absolutely. The idea was born in 2007 and this research collaboration started designing the way to capture, to uh, dissolve the CO2 in the water, to get it into the ground, uh, drill uh, testing holes, uh, make uh, mistakes, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so on and so forth. But the, the first uh, successful uh, pilot injections took place in 2012. Ah. So that was only five years after the project really started as an idea on paper. So a fairly quick progress there. And since then... We have uh, continuously applied this method to uh, sequester emissions from the geothermal power plant. Now we have also added a second source of CO2, which is captured from the atmosphere by our uh, partners at Swiss company Climeworks. When you say the rock needs to be reactive, what does that mean exactly? It just needs to contain the minerals with which the CO2 is going to react? Yeah, it has to be rich in those uh, minerals or or metals, iron, magnesium, calcium, that uh, tend to uh, come out of the rock, if we can say, I'm looking for the right word in English. Mm -hmm. Uh, They get dissolved, they they get into the water and then react with the CO2 to form these uh, new minerals. Uh So we are really dependent on those types of sometimes called mafic or ultramafic rocks. We are working primarily with basalts in Iceland. So it's a young uh, volcanic rock that contains uh, high levels of these uh, metals, about a quarter of the weight. So they, they have the ingredients needed to form the minerals. By the way, it's important to mention that this happens in nature over geologic timescales. It's one of the reasons why over 99% of all the carbon on the planet is already underground (laughs) in rocks. Uh, So even though we have a crisis on our hands, it's less than 1% of the planet's or Earth's carbon that is in the atmosphere and oceans and and biomaterials. 
so yeah it's we can say it's it's nature's way that we have found a way to accelerate and so when this mineralization happens it becomes rock that is for all intents and purposes permanent there's nothing that could reverse that process right there is a debate on what counts as permanent in the climate uh, right, right. debate. Uh, is it a hundred years? Is it a thousand years? Is it ten thousand years? But we are definitely above all of those, uh, <laughs> and and into the tens of thousands of years. So uh, even millions of years. Interesting. Okay, so it says on your website that you have to date buried ninety-seven thousand metric tons. Mm-hmm. of CO2. So I want to ask a few questions about the capacity of the land to absorb this. So you you have said, I remember you said it was very uh, striking and I remembered it afterwards when I came to visit, mm-hmm. that the amount of porous reactive rock in the Iceland sort of bedrock in and of itself could store all the CO2 that humans emit. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's even uh, when we expand on that thought and say all of the CO2 that would result from burning all remaining fossil fuels on the planet. No kidding. And that's Iceland alone. But that is a theoretical figure, not something that anyone is (laughs) uh, (laughs) contemplating. So theoretically, there's almost no upper limit to the amount of of CO2 you could store in here. But I presume there are practical limits. So like, say in a particular injection well, mm-hmm. you're pumping water down and the uh, CO2 is reacting and becoming a rock and filling in those holes. The, you know, the rock is porous. It's full of holes. Yeah. The rock is filling in those holes bit by bit. So I wonder, like in a particular injection well, do you reach saturation in a particular area? Like, is that a limit on your um, pace here? Well, in the end, we assume we will, but for the decade that we have been operating the same well, we are not even close to it. One of the signs would be that the well would become less receptive to the water flowing in, but it's that is not happening. So we don't really know exactly how long one well can last, but we do know that for the 10 years that we have been operating, admittedly on a fairly small scale, Right. But nevertheless, for a decade and, and, and close to 100,000 tons, we estimated that we have used uh, less than 0.01% of the capacity of this area where we are operating. This particular well. So, so there's, there's tons more headroom even in this individual well. Yes, absolutely. The empty space in the rock is has such a huge volume. And we are depending on the empty space. In the first instance, we are depending on it for the permeability of the rock for the water to be able to flow through and then for a part of this empty space a small part of it to hold the newly formed mineral that consists of the former co2 as a rule of thumb if your listeners are interested a cubic meter of basaltic rock could hold approximately 100 kilograms now I'm using the metric system, excuse me. <laughs> so 100 kilograms of a cu- in a cubic meter as a rule of thumb. And it is hard to wrap your head around how many cubic meters of rock there are underground. When you go deep, when you have a sizable area, these very quickly amount to huge amounts. 
Right. So space for the carbon mm-hmm. is not a limiting factor. No. I'm wondering, as you scale up, you know, if more and more CO2 is coming to you, I'm trying to figure out what the practical limiting features are here. Is there, at a certain point, you max out your flow? Like, at a certain point, you're going to max out the amount you can carbonate at a time, right? There's presumably limits on the flow of water that you can pump. It depends on the number of wells you have. If you need more flow, you can add wells. You just need to have a reasonable space between them because each well is only using so much uh, underground area. So you can have another one 300 feet away or 500 feet away or something like that. So scaling up means really uh, adding more wells, provided you have the appropriate conditions there as well. I would say a major limiting factor is the access to CO2 that has been captured. Right. So the problem is not really storing it. The problem is getting it in the first place and getting it, not only capturing it from emitters, but then also transporting it to a suitable uh, storage site. Your only limiting factor is how much CO2 you can get your hands on. There's no, practically speaking, there's no limit to the speed and quantity that you could handle if you can solve the problem of getting it to you, basically. Yeah, and I would also mention that, uh, of course, we need water for this process, so there has to be access to to water as well. Yes, I want to ask about that later too, but I want to start with energy, though, because a bunch of people, you know, I was talking about this on Twitter, a bunch of people, this is the first question people have, which is sort of how much energy are we using to do this and presumably the energy you use to do it needs to be zero carbon or else you're just sort of like in a loop of creating carbon to bury carbon so so this this is all premised on on zero carbon energy right yes preferably or or at least you need to be uh, well in iceland we don't really have that challenge all of the energy uh, is either geothermal or hydropower so it is green energy, uh, definitely. But still, there is the question of displacing green energy for the purpose of yes. carbon capture. And the, 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 it's, a, it's a whole debate on that, or, or at least some points to be made. But uh, yeah, I mean, how net positive do you need to be to be justified? That's an open question. But in our case, the, the energy is completely sustainable. and it is a very low energy process. Can you put numbers on that? Like, what do we mean by low energy? It is negligible. I mean, it is uh, running of uh, pumps. You know, pumping water doesn't require a lot of energy. So it is really almost invisible in the the big picture. Theoretically, then, even if you are using whatever natural gas generated electricity to do this, Mm -hmm. you think you still might come out positive just because you're oh definitely just because you're not using much energy yeah it's so low compared to the amounts of co2 that we are getting rid of irrespective of the fuel or power source it would be uh, vastly net positive but that's not the full value chain of course Uh, you need the capturing you may need the transport yes right and we will maybe come back to that but so we think uh, for our biggest project that we are preparing a next big project in Iceland as well. Um, transport will be the most likely the major source of, of emissions to be then, of course, fully accounted for and deducted from the benefits that we are, are claiming to make. Right. And so right now you're getting 
your CO2 that you're burying from two sources. One is the geothermal power plant, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think people think of geothermal as zero carbon, but it's not really zero carbon. There are No, kind it's of- not zero. I think it's 1% of a coal-fired plant, uh, approximately. Yeah. Right. But still. Uh, enough to capture a barrier. And the other source of CO2, which um, Volt's listeners will be familiar with, uh, is from Climeworks, this direct air capture facility just down the road from you with the big fans that are pulling f- air over this absorbent that's pulling the CO2 out. Presumably, they are compressing the CO2 and putting it in a pipeline that comes to you. Is that how it gets to you? Yeah, they, they currently uh, get it to us in uh, liquefied form, uh. so compressed and liquefied. Yeah, So they ha- break it away from their uh, filters. I'm not the best one to explain their technology, but basically it's uh, filters that they then collect it from the filters and, and compress it and send it to us. And how pure of a CO2 stream do you need for your process to work? Does it need to be super purified or is that a is that a limit not necessarily from the mineralization perspective but from other environmental uh, considerations oh right uh, i mean the european directive on uh, geological storage of co2 stipulates that you you shouldn't dump other things in there right. uh, <laughs> along with the process so you should have a pure stream of of co2 so uh, I think that's mainly an environmental consideration that makes sense generally, but that wouldn't necessarily hurt our mineralization process too much. Are there other emitted gases that we don't like that we could capture and bury and mineralize in this same way? Or is this like a carbon-only kind of thing? Uh, hydrogen sulfide is emitted by geothermal power plants. comes from the ground, just as the CO2 does. And in fact, Carbfix was born as a twin project of Carbfix and Solfix Mm. to take care of hydrogen sulfide, which is, you could accurately say that that is an even bigger threat to the local uh, environment. It's, you know, dangerous in high concentrations and and, and really a harmful gas. So that was uh, among the key considerations was to get rid of that as well. And uh, as it happens, the same process applies it works same way yeah so we get rid of the hydrogen sulfide as well you know literally improving the air quality of the vicinity of the geothermal power plant and co-inject it with the co2 and the same mineralization process happens producing another type of of mineral but oh interesting this is specific to geothermal power plants so we are very much focusing on on co2 let's talk about then Getting CO2, because if you're going to scale this process up to meaningful, you know, sort of globally meaningful levels, Mm -hmm. the big limiter is your access to variable (laughs) CO2. So it's easy enough to envision how this works in Iceland, where, you you know, you have lots of geothermal power plants creating gases that at this point you're quite familiar with. You know the process. You can, there's suitable rock nearby. Talk a little bit about the Coda terminal, because you guys have very big plans mm-hmm. to to import CO2 from other places and bury it. So how is that going to work? And how is that going to pencil out, you know, in emissions terms? Because obviously shipping, 
uses energy and produces emissions, compressing the CO2, et cetera, et cetera. There's energetic all along the chain there. So talk a little bit about how you're thinking about how you're going to set up a system to import. The big question was where should Carpix uh, scale up to the megaton scale, get to a million tons or more, which is, you know, that's the big milestone that's ahead. Because I should add maybe for context, just to back up a little bit for a half a minute, it's true that our focus needs to be on eliminating the use of fossil fuels. Of course. Uh, so the criticism is often, well, you're distracting us from that mission. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's true it's a moral hazard to use uh, carbon capture and storage as an excuse to continue with business as usual. But the fact of the matter is, and the IPCC said that very clearly in their report last year, we will not reach the climate goals, even if we manage to do really well with uh, the energy transition to green and renewable power, we will need to capture other emissions that will remain, that we know will remain. There are industries that have emissions that have nothing to do with energy. It's the part of the process of producing cement, steel, aluminium, and so on and so forth, where even if they're powered by green energy, they still have the emissions because the emissions are... Process emissions. Process emissions. So how do we... We need to take care of those as well. You could also say that even if... We could cut off all emissions to zero tomorrow. You could argue that there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere already yeah. to be safe. So you need to draw some of that down, even if you're even if you're not emitting anything. Right. So you need uh, carbon capture both from these uh, hard to abate industries, which is the reduction of the remaining hard to abate emissions, and then drawing out of the atmosphere the uh, what we know as uh, carbon remover. Right. So the, the IPCC says in its report, and uh, anyone can, can look it up, they, even in their scenario, they have several pathways of how we could reach the climate targets. They have a pathway that is highly dependent on big successes in renewable energy. So it's called the high renewable pathway. Even under that assumption, they uh, are, have calculated that by 2050, the annual amount, the annual amount of carbon capture and storage will have to be 3 billion tons. <laughs> so that even makes looking like the, the million ton milestone look pretty small. The global total today is about 40 million per year. Hmm. So we need to go from 40 to 3 billion until 2050. So that's why we can feel we can very confidently say we are a necessary complementary action in addition to other efforts. So then it becomes the question of where do we scale up? How to move it around? How to, and we decided that for scaling up and, and proving that we can do this on a megaton scale, it would be most feasible to do that in Iceland, where we are based, where we know the geology, where we know the legislative framework, and so on and so forth. It does seem like ideal conditions for what you want to do. Yes, it's ideal both from a geological perspective, a resource perspective, and, and makes sense because this is where we are and where we know best. So, uh, But then the challenge is, well, we don't have millions of tons of CO2 in Iceland right. to inject into the ground. The total emissions of Iceland, excluding land use, is about 5.5 million approximately. 
that's from cars and planes and and ships and so on you you won't be able to catch that industries in iceland are emitting a little bit over two million tons i guess so even if we could capture all of that which is not feasible in the in the near future we would not be really utilizing the the, the potential that we have so the idea with this uh, project called coda terminal is to be a transport and mineralization hub for mineralization of CO2. And this concept of a hub is really uh, what is happening now, uh, it seems, around the world when it comes to geological storage, at least. You have pockets or individual areas where you can geologically store CO2, but you need to have a, a network to get it there. Right. The big question here is, how often do you want to build the infrastructure to bury carbon versus building the infrastructure to carry carbon to the places where that infrastructure already exists? Yeah. Like, w- which of those is better carbon-wise? Yeah. We, we won't be able to build a mineralization facility next to every factory or emitter, next to every cement plant, every steel plant. So uh, that, that's just not feasible. The, the conditions are not there. So in any case, even though transporting to Iceland from Europe seems excessive, there will always need to be transport for whatever distances. Other big projects are looking at storing uh, beneath the ocean floor in the North Sea. Mm-hmm. You know, that will have to be transported somehow, ships, pipelines, whatever. So uh, I think uh, there is a lot more focus on this now. How do we make sure that we have the infrastructure? In terms of the Coda terminal, there will be shipping from Europe. Of course, it has to get to the ship as well before that. Yeah. Um, there is discussions of pipelines. Can you use existing infrastructure to some extent? Possibly, probably, but you also need some new ones. I think they're a little farther along in Europe in terms of CO2 pipelines than in the US, is my understanding. Like there's an actual plan there they are starting to at least look very very seriously into it and and adopting new uh, legislation to make sure that we have the framework about uh, financing access right. and so on and so forth there is actually considerable existing infrastructure in the US connected to the oil industry mm-hmm. that is piping uh, co2 over some distances as well so it is a known uh, concept. It's not right. you're not inventing anything new, really, but on a larger scale. So the plan for Coda Terminal is to be able to uh, receive and mineralize uh, 3 million tons every year as of 2031, when we plan to have reached full capacity. And uh, some of that will come from Iceland, no doubt. We are working, collaborating, the Icelandic government and heavy industries in Iceland are collaborating with us to find ways to uh, capture and store uh, the emissions. We have several uh, aluminium plants in Iceland using the green energy that we have, a ferrosilicon plant as well. Right. In Iceland, you can build one of these next to every factory. <laughs> yeah, conceivably. Uh, well, one of the plants is in east of Iceland where there are actually the least amount of basalts, but at least for several of them, it is very feasible. And, and in fact, the Kota terminal will be built next to one of these plants. So it is a, will be fairly straightforward once the technology is there to capture their emissions, to get it to us because we will be located right next door. And also the, there is a harbor there for, for receiving ships from elsewhere. But this is um, 
is definitely needed. The ships, if we assume that the ships would run on traditional fuels, uh, we estimate that the emissions of shipping would be maybe approximately 7% of the CO2 that's being transported for storage. So significant, but not enough to wipe out the value. Right, definitely not. But then, of course, as soon as greener fuels become available for the shipping, those will be employed immediately as they become available. So ideally, these would be zero-carbon ships carrying this stuff from Europe to you. Yeah, or at least much lower than than traditional fuels. Right, right. And this Coda terminal, is this a, a gleam in your eye? Is this, are there plans? Is, is there money set aside? Like how far, how real is this plan for this big terminal? It's very real. Uh, it uh, last year got uh, funding from the European Innovation Fund for uh, 115 million euros, mm. give or take a third of the total cost. So uh, it was deemed by the European Innovation Fund to be uh, realistic and the technological readiness level, as they say, is very high as we have been operating this technology already. We're not inventing new things. We're scaling up what we already know. So the plants are in in full motion to secure environmental impact assessments, uh, permits, uh, land, and, and so forth, and all moving along quite nicely. Is the idea that CarbFix would sort of have direct contracts with big emitters in Europe, sort of direct contracts to offtake their CO2? Yes. The business case is in part, and we could say probably the, the biggest part of the business case is the fact that Europe has cap on emissions from industries. So the European trading uh, emission trading system, ETS, is the um, driver for companies to take care of their emissions. So those who know how the system works will know that uh, you get a certain amount of free allowances and it's a total cap on the continent. The free allowances are reduced gradually year on year, creating a kind of a pressure on industries to improve. And since the emission allowances are are quite expensive, there is a significant incentive to uh, take care of it otherwise, capture it and store it. And the regulative framework uh, says if you uh, capture it and store it in a regulated geological storage site that has the uh, appropriate permits, then you don't need to purchase the emission allowances. So this is what creates the the business case. And the flip side of that is the economy of our uh, method, which is a very uh, economical method indeed. Yeah. Is this, as far as you know, the cheapest form of permanent storage? I'm not sure I can say that with 100% certainty, but uh, (laughs) judging from the look on people's faces when we uh, discuss (laughs) the costs, uh, I'm I'm thinking that they must be. The mineralization cost itself is, is very low, less than 20 US dollars per ton or something. I want to talk about water, but first, actually, I got a bunch of questions about land use, but I, I think we should just say that, like, the land use <laughs> needs of this are really quite small. I saw one of your little domes that you build to house the pumps, mm-hmm. and it's just like a little yurt. Like, it's relatively tiny. I guess you have to count the 
pipelines on some in some respect. But in yeah. terms of land use, that doesn't seem like a, a kind of limiting factor. You're not taking up a lot of space. Definitely not for a single well. And even uh, with the Kota terminal, where we will need uh, many more wells, of course, uh, spreading out over a significant area, the actual footprint of the actual infrastructure is quite small and can quite easily coexist with other industries, facilities. It's not uh, a uh, delicate uh, operation. Right. It doesn't ha- emit uh, noise, vibration, emissions. So, uh, you know, I think I would happily live next door to one of these injection wells. Yeah, like I could tuck one of those in my backyard. They're, right. they're, they're even kind of cute. It can easily cohabit with other industries, no question. So right now, because you are in this symbiotic relationship with the geothermal plant, insofar as you build next to geothermal plants, you don't really have to worry about water because geothermal plants bring water up and then they pump water back down. So all you're doing is kind of inserting yourself and adding a, one additional step in that process. But the water loop is basically the same yeah. as for a normal geothermal plant. But I'm wondering, you know, you know, I have several questions about sort of the potential to do this in other places, in other contexts. If you didn't have a geothermal plant, how do you think about where to get water? And is that, do you view that as kind of a limiting factor on where you can go and where you can establish one of these? We do need water to be there, but uh, there are many places where you have uh, access to groundwater. In fact, I read a report on, on groundwater in the U.S. that said that it is a underutilized resource because huh. it's only about 30% of the fresh water that is used in the United States is groundwater. The rest is you know, surface water. So uh, I, th- I think not everybody realizes the extent of water that is uh, stored in the ground uh, and for one reason or another hasn't been uh, extracted. It's certainly a precious resource and that's why it's important to note that we are, well, we are not competing with, you know, domestic uses of potable water. Definitely not uh, going anywhere near uh, those kinds of uh, reservoirs. We do return the water into the ground, uh, not having contaminated it in any way, uh, added CO2 to it. The, what you do to the water, does that render the water dangerous in any way? Like, can it mess up groundwater or can it pollute anything? Or like, is there any, is there any risk to this carbonated water? Well, it is mineralized water, mineral water. When you add carbon dioxide into water, it raises the acidity. So you you don't want to mix it with uh, with the groundwater, and that's why the, we go uh, much deeper with the injections, isolate the the pipes from the the surroundings, and uh, because as you mentioned at the start of our talk, that once you have added the CO two to the water, it's heavier than than the water around it. Right. It it tends to sink. Uh, and continue uh, sinking. So you inject it below the groundwater that people are drinking. Absolutely. And it sinks. Yeah. So theoretically, you could pump up the water yourself. I mean, presumably that would add a little bit of cost, but you could just pump up the water yourself out of the water table, carbonate it and pump it back down mm-hmm. with no need for an external water source. Right. Well, if, if the water is there at the site, yes, we of course need to... <laughs> relevant permits and everything uh, right, right. like that. But 
Yes, the, and the water use, because we are talking about fairly big amounts, it adds up and it's easy to uh, calculate big numbers. Uh, but I was actually looking into this a few days ago. The, what's the water footprint of products? And I found a website from a, I guess it's an NGO that's concerned with water and water preservation and so forth. And uh, it takes about three tons of water to make a hamburger, <laughs> if you calculate the, the life cycle of it. So uh, for us to uh, take care of one ton of CO2 uh, requires about the same amount of water that it takes to uh, make nine or ten hamburgers <laughs> or two smartphones. But you're not really using up the water, right? You, you bring it up and you put it back down. It's we bring it up, put it back down. We do add the, the CO2. The CO2 then gets released from the water again as it mineralizes. So then the water is free of the CO2 that we added to it and it goes on its way. Yeah. So it seems like in terms of like large scale hydrological systems, you basically have very little effect. You're just kind of inserting yourself in the middle of a process that's already happening, but you're not you're not a net subtracting water. Well, it, it depends on where you take the water and where you put it. Do you return it to the same place as where you took it? So that, that will be different uh, from site to site and will need to be assessed. I, I would not be comfortable saying, well, we don't have any effect at all. <laughs> I think that wouldn't be fair. Uh, so it is something that needs to be looked at, uh, investigated, analyzed properly to make sure that we are not affecting. When you extract water from one place, it, you can affect the hydrology of surrounding area and so on right. and so forth. But I would not say it's a zero concern, but I, I, I would definitely say that, you know, with the proper designs, we can make it entirely safe. Well, one almost inexhaustible source of water is uh, the ocean, which is sitting right next to you there in Iceland. So. I wonder what about the prospect of carbonating ocean water and injecting it underground? Because if you could do that, then you have all the water you could ever want in the world. Is this yeah. is this something you have been thinking about or trying to do? Most certainly. We, uh, a few years ago, started to uh, look into this very heavily. We have already demonstrated in uh, controlled conditions in the laboratory at the University of Iceland, that the physics work, dissolving CO2 in seawater, exposing it to the appropriate rocks, produces the, this mineralization uh, process in much the same way as, as using freshwater does. Is there any reduction in performance or anything, or does it work just as well? It more or less works uh, well, yes. I'm not sure exactly about the details of the differences, whether the, the whether you can dissolve as much in, or, mm. or more even, or what the effects are exactly. But what I do know is that once you uh, leave the controlled conditions of the lab and go into the field, <laughs> right. you tend to run into uh, unexpected things. And that's precisely why we have actually started just a few days ago, we finally injected the first CO2 that was dissolved in seawater into uh, the below the ocean floor using seawater. So the uh, the installation is is uh, at the shore. It's not offshore. It's close to the shore. 
So we are extracting seawater and then uh, pumping it or injecting it under the seabed. And this is like the shallow coastal seabed, right? Yes. But we always go uh, a few hundred meters uh, down into the ground and below it. So, yeah, that was a milestone for us that we have been celebrating uh, for the last couple of days at the company because it's such a it has such potential to be a game changer uh, in terms of opening up new geographies, new areas where it might otherwise not be feasible. Right. And definitely um, removes any worries about the availability of water. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> At that point, you got all the, the world's oceans uh, full of water. Mm-hmm. You know, right now you are as we've been sort of discussing in what is, you know, might as well have been cooked up in a laboratory to be the perfect circumstances for this. You've yeah. got the geothermal there. You've got cheap carbon-free power mm-hmm. to run it on. You've got the perfect porous, young basalt rock, almost unlimited <laughs> space down there to use. So this is, uh, Iceland is ideal for this. Have you tried to do this with other kinds of rock and other kinds of geology in other countries? We have done uh, two small test projects uh, abroad. Uh, so we have injected uh, small amounts in Germany and in uh, Turkey. Those uh, were kind of research pilot projects, not really intended to become huge projects, more of a scientific exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are looking into several locations abroad at various stages of discussion, possibly development. Basalt is actually uh, quite common. It covers about 5% of the landmass. Uh, oh, really? Uh, yeah. So it's not only in Iceland, but it tends to be young and, and favorable basalt in Iceland. Right. Also, the ocean floor, the majority is is basalt. So that also is <laughs> about what we were discussing earlier. So there are several locations, but uh, I could mention also the U.S. We have been awarded uh, three rather than four. I think it's three grants from the U.S. Department of Energy to study the potential of our method in the U.S. Interesting. Where would that be? What, what kind of rock would that be? Well, it's basalt in the Pacific Northwest. Huh. So two projects there. And we are, I should note, that we are in collaboration with many uh, other parties collaborating on these projects. So it's not just us. It's the, the Rocky Mountain Institute, the uh, University of Wyoming, and others and others, uh, Pacific Northwest National Labs, and other partners uh, that are collaborating on, on a couple of projects in the Pacific Northwest. And those have to do with basalts because there are huge basalts uh, in that area. And then in uh, in Minnesota, we also have a feasibility study that we are going to do in collaboration with others as well to check whether our, our method can be applied there in a, in a slightly uh, different form of, of, of rock formations. Is there a general way to characterize what sort of geology you need? I mean, is it basalt specific or is it just you need porous rock, rock with a lot of these minerals in it? Are there other kinds of rock that have these features? Yeah, like I said, they are similar to basalt, uh, these mafic and ultramafic rocks, which have the large amounts of the metals that we discussed need to be there. The porosity uh, can vary for our approach. It, it needs to be there to some extent. Right. And we know that there are other 
companies looking into different types of rocks that are maybe less permeable, but have also potential storage capacity. So those will bring different challenges, I guess, that, that we are not qualified to <laughs> explain fully, but at least this uh, natural uh, tendency uh, and capability of uh, rocks to store CO2 is something that is catching uh, a lot of attention. And, and to my knowledge, I think I can safely say that we are the only ones actually applying it today, on at least on a commercial basis. Mm-hmm. So it's still somewhat of an open book here. We still don't have a great idea of the full extent of types of rock that could be used here. Yeah, you're right. And we I forgot to mention that we also got, uh, in collaboration with scientists in Scotland, a public fund there to also look into potentials there. I believe those are also slightly different rock types. So uh, there is a lot of research going on. And what we have to uh, balance is to uh, move our projects along that are based on what we know and at the same time to uh, expand, improve, and do uh, research and development as we need to do to scale these things up. But uh, we are quite uh, satisfied with the project pipeline that we have already and the, and the R&D pipeline. So we are around 43 people today. Uh, we were 15 when I started 18 months ago. We are... Uh, changing fast it's the right thing at the right time seems like there's no shortage of co2 out there looking for places to be buried yeah that's right in terms of uh, um, sort of accounting just to take your current setup if climbworks captures a ton of co2 sends it to you and you bury it who gets the carbon credit who gets to sell the carbon credit there who gets to sort of claim to be the entity? that dealt with the carbon? Yeah, well, that uh, that's a matter of negotiation. Under the current setup, uh, Climeworks sells the credits to customers such as Microsoft and, mm-hmm. and others. So we are providing the, the storage as a service. Potentially, we could uh, have a different setup where we would split those uh, credits somehow. We are, we are not really there at the moment. So that's not totally settled yet how that's going to work. As for the current setup, it is definitely. Right. So, uh, but what what may happen in the future? Potentially, we also uh, have collaborations with other uh, direct air capture companies. So, you know what the setup will be when those are, are come online. We'll have to see. Uh, one fascinating question uh, from my perspective is also the interplay of corporate accounting and national accounting. Yes, we addressed that on an episode of this very pod a few weeks ago. I'll have to listen to that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a puzzle. Yeah, because there is uh, some criticism that, uh, for example, a particular project in in Denmark, where Denmark is going to count the storage project against its uh, national targets. Right. uh, And the credits are also sold to uh, a private company in another country. I think it's Microsoft, actually. I think yeah, we yeah, discussed right. that very case. Yeah. So some people call that uh, double claiming, double right. counting. Others, and I would, uh, I'm, I'm a bit uh, fond of that argument, uh, which is that uh, this is co-claiming, where you shouldn't confuse national accounts with corporate accounts. Right. It's, uh, it's two entirely different systems. 
So you do have countries, for example, publishing figures on employment. And then you have companies publishing exactly the same figures. And one is an aggregate of the other. So you're not double counting the jobs. You're just counting them in two right. different. You have them in the annual report of this company. And then you have them in the national uh, economic figures of, of the country. So I don't think really there is necessarily a problem there as long as there are not two companies claiming the same results. Right. Well, so let's, there's still puzzles, though, because, uh, you know, say in, in, in the private accounting scheme, you know, whatever, Climeworks gets the credit and, and shares a little bit of it with you. That's the private thing. But for publicly, like if emissions are captured in, I don't know, uh, Germany, mm-hmm. liquefied, shipped to Iceland and buried in Iceland, mm-hmm. is that a reduction in Germany's emissions? Does Iceland get to claim anything? Well, what is and what should be? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My understanding is that under the current rules, it would be an emission reduction in Germany because you count at the smokestack, so to say. Right. And that's the same logic. You know, the current climate accounting is you count the emissions where they happen. Right. You, You could do it otherwise. You could, for example, have consumption-based accounting where Iceland would have to, well, we import cars. We don't produce any cars. Right. The case could be made that, to be fair, we should be acknowledging the carbon footprint of those cars. The embedded emissions, right? Yes. They're called. And at the same time, we are having in Iceland to uh, acknowledge or bear the burden, so to speak, of having three aluminium plants. We are producing aluminium for 3% of the world's production. You know, many hundreds of times more than what we need. We could produce our own needs in like 10 seconds or something. Yeah, right. Because we're such a small nation of 360,000 people. And you could say it's unfair that we have to bear, you know, account for this. And as a result of this, we have some of the highest emissions per capita in the world. But that's because we are the aluminum factory of the world. Is that that's not really fair, you could argue. So you could you know, argue for a consumption uh, based, but that I guess it's just not practical. So you just count at the stack in the geography where the stack is located. I mean, if you did do a consumption based accounting, you could see Iceland being like negative emissions many, many times over, you know, if they become a hub for burying stuff. Yeah, if you would count all the all the bearing in Iceland, right. then, you, then you could, yeah. But we, at the same time, we do consume products and they have to be shipped here and, and so on. But the point I'm making is maybe that there is no single best way. You have to choose an approach uh, and it may not be perfect, but it has to be practical. We have this uh, principle of just counting the, in the, the geography. And by that logic... I guess, you know, if, if emissions are reduced in a certain location, that location needs to be credited. And even though it seems a bit unfair that the country storing it doesn't get the credit. So <laughs> because if you couldn't store it, then you, you know, what would you do with it? So, yeah. you know, from personally, I feel that it is worth discussing at least whether we need for this to be recognized somehow, the contribution of countries that are storing, providing storage, or is it simply the financial benefit of selling that service, or should it be reflected in the in the climate national accounts? I mean, I don't really have a 
very strong opinion on it, but uh, it's it's worth uh, thinking about, and it's an interesting uh, thought exercise. Yeah, it's quite a puzzle. You move one piece, and a bunch of other pieces move. Yeah, I'm I'm also sympathetic to the view that we mustn't get too caught up in bookkeeping. Right, we need to get things done. So. I, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, well, Iceland will not uh, store CO2 unless we get the credit. I mean, that's not really a very sensible position. Uh, even though you may have interesting arguments about it, <laughs> the the pressing issue is to get things done and not to get stuck in these details. With all due respect to proper accounting and everything, of course, <laughs> it has to be in place. But uh, let's not uh, get... Uh, distracted from the the task which is to get some progress and and scale up our efforts for sure you know one of the things that really captured my my attention and my imagination no pun intended yeah yeah exactly <laughs> captured but did not vary my my uh, attention and um, imagination here is just how simple this whole thing is it's very there's no piece of this that is particularly obscure or, or technical more than, you know, an ordinary person could understand. So I wonder, are there places in this process where you can foresee substantial performance improvements or innovations? Like where could you improve the performance of this process? Or is it so simple that it's just, it just is what it is. And, you know, you might get some um, economies of scale, but the process itself just is what it is. Or are there, is there room here to sort of improve the performance of this? Yeah, absolutely. We are, we are continuously doing that. Uh, I'm not sure that there will be an order of magnitude uh, improvements in, in efficiency, but we are definitely working to uh, use uh, uh, our resources more efficiently, use uh, less water, and uh, increase the capture efficiency from geothermal power plants. That was a big uh, breakthrough that we had. So we have designed new capturing uh, equipment. Oh, interesting. We've designed a mobile injection system that en enables us to go into areas for, for test injections with uh, much less uh, effort than before. Uh, the seawater tests are, of course, would be... Uh, if those are successful, a game changer. But you are right. I think it's more, uh, apart from the seawater, which is a, really a big shift, it's more, uh, you know, honing and, and fine-tuning, but definitely going after uh, every bit of improvement that we, that we can identify. Awesome. Well, this is so fascinating, Olafur. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking us through it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I hope to... Uh, see you up here in the Pacific Northwest before too long. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's Volts. WTF so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time.